Hello, and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona, during our normal service. I'm happy to be preaching with you this morning. Um, probably heard that expression, never meet your heroes, uh, because though inevitably those heroes will probably let you down on some sort of level. Um, you know, whoever we look up to, whether it's like a musician or an athlete or someone famous, you know, if you were to hang out with them for a day or, or for a while, you'd probably see more of their flaws and not just, you know, like normal, uh, just like them being normal people. Uh, the tabloids, they thrive on this. They thrive on catching famous people just like looking disheveled at Starbucks or, you know, putting groceries in their cart uh, from like, Costco, you know, things like that. Maybe you've met a, maybe you have a friend that like met a celebrity in an airport and they were just like, just, I don't want to be, I'm famous. I don't want to talk to you right now. I'm, I'm just trying to get on your plane. You know, there's, there's all kinds of examples like that. It doesn't even have to be a traditionally famous person. Um, a good friend of mine is in seminary and a professor he has is like someone that I really look up to. I've read books by this person, read articles, things like that. Um, and my friend has actually had some like not amazing, not great encounters with, with, with them. And it kind of bummed me out to hear about that. I was kind of like, oh man, like that image has been shattered for me. Um, and also for my friend, because my friend took the class because my friend also liked this, this person as well. Uh, to be clear, it was nothing like terrible, nothing, nothing like morally egregious or anything like that. It was just he kind of felt like he was like a number in the class and the professor just like was kind of just barely even reading his papers and, 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 and things like that. So, yeah, so that's, a, that's the thing, you know, uh, be careful of meeting your heroes. Well, we're looking at various prayers in the Bible. We've been in this series for a while now, and we're going to look at a moment in the life of Elijah the prophet, uh, arguably one of the more, most powerful prophets in the Bible, an incredible man of faith. Um, and in this story, though, we see him at a very, very, very low point. We see him at a point that doesn't really match like the rest of what we know about him. Um, it's one of those moments where if the tabloids were around back then, oh man, they'd be paying top dollar to get photos of him in this moment. It's kind of like, our, like a moment where our hero kind of falls. And so that's kind of the, uh, that's where we're going today. So as always, we start with prayer. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truth of your word as, as enacted when it was first lived out, the, the truth of your word throughout the ages, and the truth of your word for us here and now today. I pray that I would indeed be able to preach and proclaim your truth this morning. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. But we pray that we'd be brought glory and honor, and that we'd learn to better be your disciples as a result. Amen. All right, so we are looking at a moment in the life of Elijah the prophet. A few different stories we could have picked, uh, but again, this one involves a prayer, a prayer for his self-destruction, as well as one, uh, an encounter that he has with an angel. And I don't know if talking with an angel technically counts as prayer. Um, you know, we can have a theological argument after the service if you'd like, but it's kind of in that ballpark of action, so that was why I wanted to look at this one. Um, Elijah, he's a prophet during the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. It's pretty much when we see most of the prophets when the kingdom is going through some splits and some issues. Um, and we don't actually have a book of Elijah uh, where we have all these like long speeches and oracles. Uh, well, often when we think of the prophets, we think of Isaiah and Jeremiah. We have these long things that they, that they wrote down. Um, instead, what we have with, with Elijah is this, like a lot of actions and deeds about Elijah. We know a lot of what he did um, with some dialogue. 
uh, whereas most of the other prophets, we have a lot of things about what they said, uh, but not as much action. Uh, but Elijah appears on the scene when King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are ruling over Israel. Um, and just in case you did not know this, they are terrible. Like Ahab and Jezebel are pretty much like some of the worst leaders Israel has ever had. Um, they're consistently presented as unfaithful and terrible. Uh, they do everything in their power to lead the people further and further into idolatry. They're all about you know, like killing the righteous of the land, things like that. So Ahab and Jezebel, bad people. One of those, like, I like to, sometimes I like to talk about names and how we name our kids. Like, those are not popular names, and they shouldn't be because like, the, their namesakes aren't that great. Um, but Ahab and Jezebel, they are big fans of the god uh, uh, Baal, uh, who is one of the uh, bigger pagan gods that was around during this time. And in fact, our current story picks up uh, just after Elijah has an encounter with 450 prophets of Baal. And in this previous story, there's a showdown between Baal and uh, Yahweh. And each, uh, each side, they build an altar, and they, their, their whole goal is like, hey, my God is better than your God. We're going to see whose God sets, the, sets their altar on fire. And so the prophets of Baal, there's 450 of them. They're doing all this stuff to try to get this, this uh, altar to um, catch on fire. They're whipping themselves into a frenzy, and they're calling out all this stuff, and they're speaking in tongues, and who knows what else they're doing. They're dancing around, and like, nothing happens. The altar is just there. And then it's Elijah, and Elijah's kind of mocking them. And then it's Elijah's turn to get up. And he, what he does is he dumps three huge things of water onto the altar. He steps back and he's like, God, do your thing. And bam, fire falls from the sky and just like wipes out uh, the altar. And after this, Elijah actually seizes the prophets of Baal and has them all killed. And that is where our story picks up today. And so this text is a continuation of the last account. And so uh, Queen Jezebel, she hears what Elijah has done, and she puts a hit out on him. She is not happy about this. Um, and she puts a curse upon herself and says, like, hey, if I don't kill you, then I'm going to you know, put this upon myself if I don't uh, you know, take you out within 24 hours. I mean, this guy just wiped out 450 of her favorite you know, prophets. So she is not happy about this. And here's where the story gets kind of interesting, is that Elijah, he's been around for a few chapters now. We've kind of read a bit about him, and we've seen him do a lot of bold and miraculous things. Uh, but here we see him afraid. Here we see him running away. And on the one hand, Jezebel is the queen. Obviously, she has a lot of resources at her disposal, one of the few people in the land who probably could, in fact, make this happen. So it's certainly on one level not an empty threat. Uh, but on the other hand, again, the previous story, Elijah just wipes out 450 prophets uh, to say nothing of all the other exploits and miraculous deeds that he did. And so it's kind of interesting. So you're kind of like, well, what's, what's, what's going on? Why does he have all this fear all of a sudden? You know, we're not, we're not exactly what's told, what's, we're not told exactly what's going on in the mind of Elijah at this moment. In a little bit, we're going to get a little bit more, uh, some more insights into that. But here, we don't exactly know what's going on in his head. Uh, it'd probably be safe to assume that, um, you know, we, we, he would know that Jezebel was a force to be reckoned with, and so, you know, maybe he just is, is a little bit afraid of that. Uh, so he runs away, he travels into the wilderness, he finds a shrub or a tree or a bush or some sort of object out there, and then he offers up this prayer. Uh, in, the, uh, in the NET version, it says, I've had enough, now, O Lord, take my life. After all, I'm no better than my ancestors. And there's an interesting irony about this because he was running away to preserve his life, and yet here he's safely in the, um, in, in the distance off in the wilderness, and now he's offering up this prayer of self-destruction. So he's running away to get safe, and yet when he's in the safe zone, he's like, oh, now I want to, you know, I want to end my life. 
You know, on, on some level, it sounds like maybe he's exhausted and maybe he's thinking he's out of options. He falls asleep and when he wakes up, there's an angel there who gives him some uh, baked goodies and some fresh water. And we, we haven't referenced other stories of Elijah, but when he first shows up on the scene, he performs several miracles that involve food. So if you're a big fan of food, you probably should like Elijah because when Elijah shows up, there's food. If there's, no, if there's no food, suddenly it's there. So Elijah's a good uh, prophet for food. Uh, so earlier on in the story of Elijah, he's actually hiding from King Ahab. He's out in hiding, and he's actually fed by ravens. They bring him food every day. I don't know kind of, I don't know how like uh, you know safe that was to eat, but you know how sanitary that is. But the ravens are bringing him food. Um, there's another story involving a widow and their son, and they're they're about ready to die. They have no food left, and he prays over their oil and their flour, and they just miraculously are able to make bread for several days in a row. Um, and so, uh, there's, uh, so again, there's a few stories involving Elijah and miraculous provision. Um, and so here again, we see another one. And this, this meal and this nap, they give him energy to travel on some more. In verse 8, we read it takes him another 40 days and 40 nights to get to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. And so whenever we see the number 40 in the Bible, ooh, we should get a little excited. Our ears should perk up a little bit because uh, we should get excited because that's the number that we associate with Moses. Uh, Moses and 40, you kind of want to link those together. So Moses was up on the mountain. He was getting the Ten Commandments um, and the law, and he was up on that mountain for 40 days. And so the author of 1 Kings is not so subtly telling us that this Elijah fellow here, like, ooh, like he's kind of like Moses. And so as Moses was an anointed prophet of God, so is Elijah. As we value the importance of Moses for the story of Israel— we should likewise do this for Elijah as well. You know, so whatever positive things we want to associate with Moses, we can likewise say this about Elijah too. So Elijah's in a cave that night. The Lord appears to him. And that's when we get more into the, what's going on in Elijah's brain. Uh, because why are you here, Elijah? That's the question that's presented. Why are you in this cave? Why did you run away? And here's where, here's where he lays it all out. In verse 10, he says, I have been absolutely loyal to the God of heaven's armies, even though the Israelites have abandoned the covenant they made with you, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and now they want to take my life. And so here now we see more into like the psyche and the mind of Elijah. Elijah has it in his brain that he's alone, and there's no one left. He's, he's the last one standing. That Jezebel and Ahab, they've driven away and they've killed all the true followers of, of the covenant, that everyone else is just kind of like going along with them. Like that again, he's the last one left, and maybe, last one left, maybe it's time to throw in the towel. I can't keep running. I've been running and running and running. You can only get so far before you run out of land. So maybe it's just now time to give up. It's a dark place to be. Like, that's a, that's a heavy place to be. Like, oof, that's really dark, you know? So I could see why Elijah would want to take his own life at this point if that's how he sees and that's how he understands his position, that he's, like, alone. He's the last one left. Um, zombie movies. Zombie movies have been popular for a while now. I've seen lots of films in this genre where you have a small band of survivors. They're just trying to survive whatever apocalypse, whatever zombies are around them. You know, there's, there's tons of variations of this kind of, of theme. And survival, that is an idea that's just like one of the things that's just baked into all of these films is survival. Like, are we going to survive? How are we going to get through this? Are we going to repopulate the earth? Are we going to live to see tomorrow? Like, all of that. And I think that's one of the reasons these films are so popular is because that's a primal instinct all of us have is, is survival of making it through the next minute, the next day, the next year. You know, we all have that inside of us. 
In zombie movies, they bring that fear to the forefront. And often there's like a, like a plot point involving the band of survivors like talking about like, okay, at what point we might need to like end each other's lives. If you get bit, what do we do? Like there's like those kind of conversations as morality plays that take place in those stories. And I think here in this cave, Elijah is admitting that like he's like in a zombie apocalypse and he's like just trying to figure out what to do. He's the last one left. The zombies are circling. So why try to fight them off? Why not just kind of like, you know, take, take the initiative into your own hands? And the Lord hears this. Yahweh hears this. He says to go outside on the mountain. He says, wait for him to pass on by. When our ears should perk up again, this should get excited. we should get excited about this again because it's another connection with Moses. God passed by Moses while on Mount Sinai. And again, the author is kind of beating us over our heads at this point, like Elijah and Moses, you want to link these guys together. There's all these connections uh, there. And so Elijah's there and these three powerful events occur. There's a strong wind, there's an earthquake, and there's a fire. The wind was so strong it caused landslides. And yet God is not in these spectacles. But there's a fourth thing that happens. There's this final event. Elijah hears a soft whisper. And it's with the whisper that he like hides his face. God is in that whisper and he's hiding his face because he's afraid of dying. Again, another connection. Moses is told by Yahweh, if you see my face, you will die. So Elijah is kind of picking up on that theme as well. If I've seen God, I'm going to die now. Again, the Lord appears to Elijah and says, asks him the same question, why are you here? And again, Elijah gives this exact same response. He repeats word for word what was said before. I am the last one left, and it is better for me to die. And rather than take him outside again, God gives him some instructions. He says, go and anoint some new kings and find this other guy named Elisha. Elisha is going to take your place. Elisha is going to carry on what you did. And he ends his commands by stating, I still have left in Israel 7,000 followers who have not uh, bowed their knees to Baal or kissed images of him. There is still a remnant left of, of those who are like you, Elijah, of those who are being faithful. You are not alone. We talked about the number 40 earlier, and um, so let's talk about the number 7,000 for, for a moment. Um, so it's possible we take that very straightforwardly, like, hey, there's literally 7,000 of Israelites like Elijah. Uh, but many scholars like to point to the number seven as kind of being like God's number, like the number of perfection and completeness. And therefore, it's uh, referring that there's a group of people left that are just like, and this is symbolic of their holiness. It's symbolic of their fact that there's a group left who are kind of on God's path trying to do the right thing. So regardless if we understand this number as literal or figurative, the fact remains that Elijah should be encouraged that he is not alone. And so, you know, in, in diving into this, again, you can, sometimes you read these stories, you're like, what do you do with this? How do we make sense of this? What does this mean for us today? I think there's a lot of different angles we could take. Um, I'm a big fan of memes. I like to reference, reference memes here and there. And there's a meme that was on my news feed a, few, a while back that I thought was pretty good. And so in case you can't read it, uh, this is your, from Twitter, uh, this is your gentle reminder that one time in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I'm so mad, I want to die. So God said, here's some food. Why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept, ate, and decided things weren't so bad. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. <laughs> 
I don't necessarily know that that's the point of this uh, story, but I appreciate the humor. And there is truth in this humor. This is not wrong. And so I wanted to share this. And so if you read the story and if it causes you nothing else, just to remember nothing else, that maybe I'm in a bad mood, take a nap and, you know, eat something, I'm okay with that. If that's what you take from this sermon, okay, I'm good with that. Uh, but, but let's go a little bit deeper. Let's get a little bit more serious. But, but going deeper, that, deeper than that, we, we see a man who is going through something monumental here. He is going through something heavy. He's having like almost this existential crisis. In toddler speak, he's expressing some big feelings. You know, he has done all this stuff for Yahweh. He is committed to the cause. He's had this strong faith that he's on the right path. And it just all comes crashing down in front of him with Jezebel's threat. He feels like he is alone. He feels like there's no one left. He feels the zombie, zombies circling. And it just might be better for him to die. Oof. That, again, is some dark stuff. And in this state, in this darkness, God shows up. They have a conversation, and the conversation might not go the way Elijah would have wanted or the way that we would expect. You know, we're, giving a lot, we're given a lot of details into the, uh, to the fury, into the power of Yahweh. There's an earthquake, there's a wind, there's fire. And yet the text says that God is not in these things, that God is causing these things. And these miracles, these absolutely like crazy things, like these do not rattle Elijah. Like we're in Phoenix here, the weather gets, you know, the weather's pretty still, but then we're in monsoon season and sometimes you feel like your house is gonna blow away. And whenever that happens, I'm in my house as a modern day person, I'm like, I think the roof might blow off. And Elijah's in a cave, he could get, you know, obliterated this cave and it doesn't even phase him. No, but something else very much shakes him. What, what, what rattles him to the core, which is like causes him to stop in his tracks, what causes him to hide his face is what happens in verse 12. In the Net Bible we're using as our translation, it talks about a gentle whisper. The King James famously translates this as the still small voice. That's kind of like what we often associate with that. Numerous other translations have a different take on how to render the underlying Hebrew. The sound of sheer silence, there was a sound, thin, quiet. Finally, there was a gentle breeze, the sound of a low whisper. It's, it's the quiet, it's the stillness, it's the whisper. This is what breaks Elijah. And again, we're not exactly told what is said here, and there's some disagreement, like is it complete silence or is there something like barely audible? But this, this is what causes Elijah to hide his face and is worried like, I have seen God, I am going to die. In the overarching story of Elijah, there are all kinds of crazy things that are happening. Fire falls from the sky, food magically appears, angels are there, right? And for Elijah, these things happen and he just rolls with it. It's almost like, yeah, I expected that, no big deal. And yet when he's at the end of the rope and he sees another series of literal earth-shaking miracles, None of these things do anything for him. But it's experiencing God in the quiet, in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the silence. That is what like gets to the bottom of his soul and causes him to fall over. And maybe, just maybe, what's happening with Elijah is he's, he's starting to realize something. Maybe he's starting to realize like, oh, like God has been here this whole time. God has never left me. You know, God's always been there, whether it's these crazy miracles or maybe through the mundane, everyday, normal stuff that I'm dealing with. 
And I think maybe Elijah is having this moment where he's realizing that God does not simply appear in the miracles and the pomp and the show, but he's there in the everyday as well. That God is with him through every moment, good or bad, ugly or beautiful, wild or mundane. That even in his wilderness journey and running as far from civilization as possible, God's still there. God has not left him. And not only has God not left him, there remains others who remain faithful and others who are like Elijah and others who are putting their trust in Yahweh and trying to do the right thing. You know, for us here and now, we don't live in a time of crazy miracles like this. You know, and we have a variety of ways of how do, how do we understand this? How do we interpret this? How do, how do we deal with passages like this? And I think a small part of us, at least for me, is very much like, well, why not? Why can't we get miracles now? Why can't I just pray and have bread appear? You know, why can't I call down fire upon my enemies? Well, that's probably, that's probably for the best that we don't have this, you know? And I, I don't necessarily understand the full picture of, like, why miracles like this aren't a thing now. Uh, but one part, I think, of the answer is that when we read the, these miracles in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, they, they, they often seem to just showcase or prove that God is present with the people. I think one part in under, understanding miracles is they show that God is there and present and has not left them. Uh, but the deeper plan of God, the broader plan of God, the fuller picture of God um, was not to just simply appear in Hollywood-esque showstoppers. That was not the plan, it's just to do these like random one-off miracles. That was not the, biggest, the bigger plan. The bigger plan uh, was ultimately to become human and to be with us and to live with us and to be among us. The full plan of God was to show up and be here with us to become human in the person of Jesus, to teach us what God was actually about in ways that we could make sense and fathom. It makes sense when another human is talking to you. Miracles from the sky, like your brain can only do so much with that. But when a person is there in front of you, talking with you, showing you, you're like, oh, that I can relate to, that I can understand, that makes sense to me because you are like me. Our tendency as humans is to think that God wants to show up in the fireworks and the explosions, and admittedly, yes, sometimes very much God shows up in, in this way. But God tends to surprise us uh, and reverses how we think things should be. That's just a very, theme of, a very consistent theme of Scripture. God shows up and kind of flips things on its head. And I think Elijah caught a glimpse of that in the silence and in the whisper and the still, small voice of God. He sees a flip of like, oh, this is how it really is. It's not just the miracles, it's the everyday. By becoming human and entering into the dirt and the grime of our existence, and by, by dying on a cross, like that's the ultimate way that God shows up to be present with us, just in our mess. And that by pour, the pouring out of God's spirit on that first ragtag group of believers at Pentecost, like that's the way God would continue to be with the people. Not necessarily just through miracles, but just through everyday stuff, just sharing our resources. Not just in the thunderstorm, but inviting strangers and enemies into your homes. Not necessarily just through pillars of fire and smoke, but becoming a people who embody forgiveness and reconciliation and making peace with all peoples. I think that the, the everyday efforts we, we make to embody our faith and showcase the love of God and the love of neighbor, those are the miracles that continue to transform the world, the everyday stuff. 
Even that simple act of just like buying relief buckets to help people that we will never see, like that is a miracle that expands beyond what we can ever potentially imagine in ways we can't see or picture. You know, we have these desires sometimes to uh, build huge buildings and change the world through ruling from the top, but I don't think that was ever really the way it was supposed to be. That was not the goal of things. God is here and present with us, whether we have thousands of people in a room singing perfectly orchestrated songs, or whether it's just two or three people that are coming together and saying, like, how are you doing? How is your week going? How can I pray for you? And let us fumble through our words of, like, how to live out faith together. God is there and present in that. And so I'd like to think that in this silence, that in this whisper from God, Elijah saw a fuller picture of the story of God and realized, I am never alone. God's been with me the whole time. I should have been hiding my face the whole time because when is is there a moment that God is not here with me? And hopefully we can understand this as well and take hold of the fact that we're never alone as well that God is always with us, that no matter our story, no matter our situation, no matter where we find ourselves in, God is with us, that Christ loves us and has died for all peoples, that the Holy Spirit is active and alive and working in our hearts and lives today, and that no matter what you're dealing with, there's always going to be a remnant, there's always going to be a faithful group that can identify with your situation, with what we are going through, and wants to walk alongside of you as well. And so while I don't endorse the prayer of Elijah calling for his own destruction, let's not pray that prayer. I do endorse the prayer of, where are you, God? And God's answer of, I have been here the whole time. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.